Hey, this is Al Sapienza. I played Mikey Palmici on The Sopranos. You're listening to Bada Bing. Hijack by Jack. Take two. Ready? Hey, this is Al Sapienza. I played Mikey Palmici on The Sopranos. You're listening to Pada Bing. Hijack by Jack. I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos one episode at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this right now. And please share this episode or your favorite one with one new person. If you love the podcast, you can support it at any level by visiting glow.fm slash potabing. Finally, as always, thank you for listening and being part of this journey. Coming up is a fun conversation I had with Al Sapienza. Al, of course, played Mikey Palmisi on the show. Al was in town for a few days and came by the studio to chat. He's a great storyteller and super honest. We had a lot of fun. That's all I got. Thank you, Al. Thank you, listeners. Here's me getting the Al Sapienza experience on Pada Bing. Al, thank you for being a part of this. My pleasure. The Sopranos was one of the greatest parts of my life, and I'm sorry it took me so long to get here. It certainly wasn't deliberate. Thank you for making some time for this retrospective tapestry I'm putting together. It took me a while to pin you down, but I looked at your resume and I saw 279 TV and film credits and that about explains it. You're in demand. I'm one of those, I guess, mentally deranged guys that I love working more than anything. I love being around creative people. I love being on the set. I just, I figured out, I'm older now. I figured out why I became an actor. And I'm not making an excuse. I'm not uh, being self-deprecating. It is what it is. But I figured it out for real. When you're a working actor like me, you have an audition. You study the audition. You're memorizing the words. You put a tape in your ear. You read the script. You think about the character. You get the job. You study the script. You memorize your lines. You're on the set. When you're making something creative, you're not in reality. You're in your own world. I've been doing this since I was 19, you know, and I realized I can't deal with reality. I don't want to sit there and listen to Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump and Chuck Schumer. I don't want to listen to this crap. I love acting because it takes you out of the real world. You're in an imaginary world. Like The Sopranos was our own imaginary world. And I love it. And I realized that I can't deal with the day-to-day mundane things of earth and that's why i love being involved with the project every week because i don't have to think about anything but the project so that's pretty sick isn't it but it's the truth that's a great way to look at it for viewers like me and fans like me watching stuff is escapism but it sounds like for you your work is your escapism my work is completely escapism that's so awesome you only see the work you don't see the auditions and the so i'm escaping two-thirds of the time by myself that no one even sees except the people that audition me (laughs) so what's going on what are you in town for Oh, God. I, I, I'm, I've, I started out in musical theater. My first job, yeah. miraculously, knock on wood, was on Broadway in Beatlemania at the Winter Garden Theater. I was in that for five years. So I'm a singer, and very few people know that. Were you a singer before you were an actor, right? Definitely. I started playing the drums every day 
every day when I was eight. You know, David Chase was a drummer. You know what? I forgot about that. That's right. He was. Every single day. And then I, I, I became friends with Murray the K, a New York icon. He was like as popular as Joe Namath if you were in New York. He was the first one to bring rock and roll in New York. Um, he was known as the fifth Beatle. In the Beatles' first tour of 64, he toured with them. Um, when I was at, I graduated from NYU. When I was at NYU, I took my first acting class outside uh, the school. And I was really young. And there was only one young girl in the class that I was teamed up with all the time. She wound up being Bobby Spencer on General Hospital, Jackie Zeman. She's one of like the highest paid soap opera people ever. So she's living with this older guy. And I was teamed up with her all the time to do scenes. So I'd go to their apartment on 72nd and Broadway and rehearse. And her boyfriend just took a liking to me. He was the greatest guy. He was Murray the K. So he's like, I could help you, kid. I could help you. So I'm in college. So he gets me a freaking audition for the producers of Beatlemania. I get the job. I'm in it for five years. I save all my money, move out here, study with Milton Gitzellas for 14 years at the Beverly Hills Playhouse on Robertson. That's where I met Deborah Renard from the TV show Dallas in 1984 at that class who sings with me. And we do this retrospective of the songs since we were born that have affected us. We talk about it. We we tell why they affected us and we have videos and films of our lives it's called the soundtrack of our lives and we sing the songs that have affected us from the day we were born including all i ask of you from fan of the opera somewhere west side story lay miz she sings i dream to dream i've of course neil diamond Beatles, sinatra's and and we did this for fun well, it's taken off. We played um, Herb Alpert's place, Vibrato's. Vibrato, yeah. Sold it out. There was an agent in the audience, so they're like, book this This agency's booking us. We're doing Vegas at the Smith Center on, on June 12th. And tomorrow night, uh, but this is this will be after the fact when your audience hears that, um, Friday, January 10th, we're playing Feinstein's. And that's almost sold out. I'm sure it will be. So far, everything we've done has been sold out. That's so cool. Makes it so much fun. And believe me, we don't do it for the money. Yeah. You know, it actually costs us money by the time we fly in the musical director for Vegas. And our musical director is Barry Manilow's keyboard and sometime musical director for 28 years. He's amazing, Joey Malati. So the band, just to come and watch them play, it's like seeing the original recordings. These guys are brilliant. And, uh, Everyone has a, it's just a fun, uplifting night. Everyone has a great time. I love that you said that what you're doing started out for fun. Just for fun. The best things always do. That's if you're true. motivated by money, it's doomed to fail. And you found an audience. You've, it's taken a life form of its own. And that's really awesome to hear. I've heard what you just said in every divorce proceeding in the United States. <laughs> it always started out as fun. No, I like that. Um, what is? Uh, I'm gonna. We're gonna meander, as you can tell. It's a conversation. What's your personal soprano story about how it all went down for you? What were you doing immediately before? Talk about the phone call. Kind of set the stage. Tell the story. Take listeners back. I told you I was in Beatlemania. I did Broadway for a year and a half. I stayed on the tour. I saved all my money, moved out to L.A. So I'm an actor. And, you know, I'm getting a a co-star here, a guest star there. I'm working. I was very, very lucky. I'm working. But I'm struggling. No one knows who I am. A few people in the industry know who I am, but no one knows who I am. I'm guest starring on Falcon Crest. I'm guest starring on Knott's Landing. I had a little arc on Falcon Crest. Um, And I'm in Milton's class. And, uh... Things are going okay. And uh, I'm doing this for 18 years before The Sopranos. Cops and firemen retired 
retire on a full pension after 20 years. I'm 18 years in and I'm still young, right? You know, and, uh, and I never was going to quit. Like never. Even if I like had to live on the side of the road, I was just, this is what I was going to do. And I was never going to quit being an actor. And the day I became an actor was around, the Sopranos was 98 in 1988 is the day I really became an actor, even though I was acting in class at NYU years before that. I remember the day I said, I'm going to die a poor old man trying to be an actor. And I really made that decision. I'm okay with it. No plan B. No plan B. None. Zero. When you have a plan B, you should never have a plan B. Unless you're like, you know, a general in the United States Army. and You should never have a plan B. You have one life. Any day you waste your life not doing what you want to do, you'll never get it back. And, and as far as all we know so far, we only have one shot. So the day I made that decision, that's it. I was a real actor. And I, I'm not even looking at back and I, I didn't make I'm, I'm not, I didn't make that decision that day to make me an actor. I, re, I remember. I was like... I was like, fuck this. I don't give a fuck what anyone thinks about me. I don't give a fuck how much money I have. I'm going to be a fucking actor. And that's that. And that was it. It was done. And I meant it. And it was funny. When that happened, I started to work a lot. So I'm working. I get, a, uh, I get my first lead in a movie with Brian Dennehy in March of 98. Um, and uh, one of the Baldwins was in that. Daniel Baldwin. It was really fun. I had like a lead. in The Sopranos, too. Season, yeah. the final season. Yeah. Cleaver. The movie was called, yeah, yeah, the movie was called Silicon Towers. And then right after that, I get another movie with Alec Baldwin called Thick as Thieves. And so I'm, I'm starting to get on a little work role. And, um, and after that, I get a tiny role in Lethal Weapon 4. So now it's about... You're a cop. April. Yeah, it's April of uh, 1998. So I did a very small role in uh, the first Godzilla. I'm one of the only few actors to get killed in two Godzilla movies. I get killed in Godzilla 96 and the new one in 2013 or whatever it was, or 2050. So I have a small role. I get invited to the premiere at Madison Square Garden in New York. I don't know how this happened. Maybe because I went by myself because my girlfriend at the time couldn't go. I get a seat. I'm sitting in front of Barbara Streisand, Rudolph Giuliani, Nick Nolte. I'm in like the third row, you know, at Madison Square Garden. So I watch the movie. Now, again, I'm living in L.A. I still have the apartment on Larrabee right down the street. And I get a call. And my agent, and I'm going to have to give you a retrospect. My agent calls and goes, you have a, a movie audition in New York if you want to do it for Jason Alexander. He's directing his, his first film. It was called... Um, Pink, pink Cadillac, pretty, something like that. Something, I think it was pink Cadillac. And uh, jumping back in 1992, you know, I'm struggling actor here. Do you remember the Tiffany Theater right in Sunset? And at the two theaters, I did, I played the lead in three plays. And that's called an equity waiver theater in, in Los Angeles. If you have less than 99 seats, you could use equity actors for like $14 a night. You pay for your own dry cleaning, you know? So I did three plays. One of them, well, actually, most of them were hits, but this was a giant hit. It was called Misconduct Allowed. And in the other theater was um, We Love You, Harry, about Harry Truman. Jason Alexander was a one-man show. It was Harry Truman. We were sharing the back dressing room area. We became really friendly backstage. And he was very, you know, he, was in, he wasn't that famous 
you know, in 19. Wasn't George from Seinfeld? It either just started, he was just starting. I can't remember, but he wasn't that famous. Um, so what a great guy. Like, what a down-to-earth, old-school guy. We, and we're buddies to this day. So we're backstage. We became buddies. And, um, and that was it. Oh, he, I went to a Seinfeld taping when he finally did it. And then I really didn't see him for a long time. And I get this call out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. May 1998, out of nowhere. So I go to the audition, and it's for the lead in, in this movie that he's directing after Seinfeld. And um, I'm all excited. I did a great job, but most of the time, you know when you're not going to get the job because if the director does think you're talented and likes you, they actually feel guilty that they're not giving you the job. And they're really nice. They go, oh, God, that was great, man. Thanks for coming in. You know, that was good. And you could feel it. And they mean it. Believe me, I was good. But it's just not, he was looking for something different. He was looking for a different taste, a different age. So we got Anthony LaPaglia, who's great. You know, he went with Anthony, but I knew. So I was depressed instantly. I'm like, thanks, Jason. I love you, buddy. And I do. And so I'm walking out. This is a totally... This isn't embellished. This isn't anything. This is exactly how this happened. This is like how crazy life is. You know, I'm walking out. I'm all down and out in my head. And the casting director goes, are you interested in doing a TV show? Just like that. And I'm thinking to myself, no. No, I'd rather make pizzas on Fulton Street. You know, (laughs) I'm thinking, of course I want to do a goddamn TV show. Who was the casting director? I didn't know because I was there to see Jason, but it it was George Ann Walken. That was his casting director. But I didn't even know I was going to see her. I was so excited. I'm going to see Jason. I was like, whoever the casting director is. I was never good at all that stuff. Anyway, so she goes, all right. She And, and these were her exact words. It was exactly. She goes, we're having a little trouble casting this role. You know, um, we were looking for someone who's not so ethnic. Now, and I understand now in hindsight, what she meant was, you know, a lot of the guys are, hey, you know, I'm from Brooklyn. And I'm going to kick your fucking ass. You know, now, man, get in the fucking car. Mikey was a little bit more polished than that. Mikey, they called him in, in, the, uh, in the breakdown. It said GQ clad sociopath, you know, always wearing GQ suits. So he was more polished. He wasn't like, get the fuck over here now. He was, and I was in LA since uh, 82. So I kind of, I took, you were a little bit of an outsider. And I took classes for four years uh, with Gail Ross to lose my New York accent when I had to. When I have to, I can have no New York accent. It's, you know, it's, I'm a theater guy. So I took classes with her. Her son wrote Big. Her son directed Dave. And her husband won the Academy Award for The Great Race. This is what's so cool about showbiz. You go take a class and, the, you know, it's a, and, and when I took the class, her husband, uh, her son hadn't had a job. And I remember, and should I tell you all this? You sure? Mm-hmm. I'm studying speech with this lady. Her kid is just out of school. And she goes, you know, it's, and, and her, her husband was nominated for Academy Award for the Great Race. And she goes, um, Gary, her son's Gary. She goes, Gary wants to be a writer just like his father. And she says, um, but, you know, Arthur said, and I did a play for Arthur because of her. I did Arthur, one of Arthur Ross's play in L.A. back in the friggin', you know, 80s. So she goes, she goes, Arthur won't let him do it unless he writes a novel. The kid writes a novel, you know, because I'm going to her house once a week to study speech. Then she tells me, she goes, they're going to produce Gary's first screenplay and Robert De Niro is going to star in it. And they're thrilled. 
they're thrilled that De Niro is going to star in Gary Ross's first screenplay. And he was a kid. I'm telling you, he was like 22, 23. So then a couple of weeks later, she's like, oh, De Niro's not going to do it. But we've got this fine actor of, of Tom Hanks. Well, it was big. It was friggin' big. You know, it was just, and I'm, I'm witnessing this as a student. You know, my teacher telling me stories about her son and her husband. And it was pretty funny. So Mikey was a little bit different. You know, he was a little bit cleaned up. He was a little bit. Georgianne tells you we're having a hard time yes. figuring out this guy. She said, we're having a hard time casting this role, right? So she goes, you go to my office. I forgot. L.A. or New York? This is all in New York, okay. man. And I'm in L.A., though. I was, I, I'm in New York by accident for the Godzilla screening. For Jason Alexander. I ne- this never would have happened if I don't go see. I owe everything to Jason Alexander. I owe my life to Jason Alexander. This never would have happened. My agent didn't get me in. My manager didn't get me in. I didn't get an audition for The Sopranos. I'm reading for Jason Alexander's movie, and as I'm walking out the door, the casting director as an afterthought. So she goes, go to my office. You're going to pick up a script and a videotape. You know, and it'll be tomorrow at Silver Cup Studios, blah, 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 blah. And remember, there was no new, there was no work in New York in those days. Nothing but Dick Wolf. Everyone was starving in New York. There was no work. You know, getting health insurance was hard. So, but I wasn't there. I was in L.A. So this is 98. I've been in L.A. since 82. So I go, I get the tape. And I can't believe I don't remember the assistant. She's now like a big casting director. But Sheila Jaffe? No, Sheila was her partner. Okay. It was either Meredith... Or, um, you got to look it up, but they were so sweet. That was one, this was one of the greatest experiences of my life. So I go to, so I go to the office and I'm, I have an apartment in New York, but I rented it out. So I'm crashing with my friend, Julie Weintraub on East 58th street. And, uh, I go back to her apartment. I go to my mother's and father's up in Rockland County where I grew up most of my life. And my sister Joanne is there and I'm like, you want to watch this tape with me? It's some new show about the mob or something. We put in that tape, and I'll tell you something. All of our jaws dropped. I'm not joking. You know, in in 1998, the style of television was NYPD Blue. The camera was shaking to be hip. You know, every two seconds, the camera's moving. The cuts are every, you know, eight seconds because no one has an attention span. This pilot starts, and it's a close-up of a statue on the thing for, like, 45 seconds with no cuts and then it pans up to the wall of the picture no cuts i'm like what the fuck is this this is a work of art this is like a scorsese movie and i'm watching this pilot by the end of that pilot i was nervous as shit because usually i don't get nervous i don't give a shit i wanted that job when i when we finished when that pilot ended you know and the ducks flew away my, we all looked at each other and we were like, I want to see, like, I'm not just saying this, like we, you, it was like heroin. You wanted more. Like we did not want that to end. We were like, holy, that fucking show was great. It was one of the great, in my opinion, you know, the later seasons, but that pilot, and I wasn't even in the pilot, so it can't be an ego thing. It was one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life. Like that was a masterpiece in my opinion, a TV masterpiece. So I go there. I audition. I get a call back like the next day. Do you remember who you auditioned for? It's a big role. So is everybody in the room? At that point, it was definitely George Ann. It was definitely David Chase. And then like two other people. It was probably Mitch and Robin. Probably Mitch Green and Robin Burgess. David was there. David was there. 
I don't know why I had to call back. That was this was all a went Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. I had another audition, another audition, and then by Tuesday of the next week, it was the first day of production of this series. That's how close it was to not get a Mikey Palmici at the. So I go to work Tuesday morning in New Jersey. It's the first day of production. It's the scene where we have fuck-face-itis. You know, why don't you tell the phone for me, like, that's a muscular dystrophy tone. Oh, yeah, you know, fuck-face-itis. You know, going to have a telephone. Classic. And he and I did a little, a little bit more than we should have of improv. Because we're both, you know, Jimmy was a great, Jimmy was an artist at heart. He was, he was a pure artist. He was an artist. He was a great actor. He was a great guy. And um, so we're improving a little, and shortly thereafter, there was a memo: no improving, no anything. You stick to the script because he and I. It was our first scene. We had a, took a lot of leeway, and um, and I was just hired. I wasn't hired with the five year option like everybody else. What does that mean? Like when you get it. Okay, a couple of other things that are very important for the listeners to understand. Until The Sopranos, when you were when you were a regular on a TV series, you were set. You were you if that series was a hit, you were set for life. Nobody got killed on TV series. Nobody, nobody got killed. Nobody. Google it. Prove me wrong. Jr. got shot. He didn't get killed. You didn't get killed. You got a series, and that thing lasted three years. You were rich in those days. You know. Um, I had a discussion with this about, I'll, I'll tell you the story later, about the girl, with the girl from um, 24, the wife that got killed. I can't remember her name. She was the second person. Um, I was the first person that was a main character in a TV show. And, like, everyone thinks, you know, you're there forever, and then you're gone. And, uh, and it set a precedent in Hollywood. They started doing it all the time now. And there was no job security anymore. Even when you got the five-year option, you know, when you had a TV show... They always, you had a five-year option where the network, NBC, will keep you for five years, whether you like it or not. You're going to be on that show for consistency. And there are ways to get out of it, you know, the salary hikes and all that stuff. But it was completely uncommon to kill main characters on television. So I think I have it made, right? I think I have it made, but I'm only being hired four or five episodes at a time, you know, um, like episode one through four. And then they'd use me two, three, four. I don't remember a two, three, and five. Five was a college episode, so I wasn't. So, I, but I'm happy as a clam. They loving my work. Um, episode four, I threw Rusty Irish off the waterfall in Patterson, New Jersey. And again, this is all my point of view too. Everybody, like like Elaine Landra said, everyone has a point of view of of how this all went down. And I loved everyone in that production. It was there was no. One I didn't like it was just such a great experience so we're in episode four and david chase comes up to me and again he's not a chatty guy unless you're one of his tiny you know his inner circle and he and he said to me he goes i really like what you're doing with mikey he said i didn't envision him this way but i really like it and i took that as a compliment because my 14 years um 84 to 98 yeah my 14 years with milton Katsellis. He always said to us, he goes, don't play. He goes, just be a real person, man. He's like, don't play the obvious. Don't ever be an actor. Just 
be a person. He goes, and people aren't just evil or good. He goes, you know, you see Hitler with puppies. You see Hitler laughing in videos. You know, he had family dinners. You know, so when I got this, this script, I'm like, okay, I shoot someone on page 52. I don't have to be mean and tough. I don't have to. I shoot a guy in the face. <laughs> That's, there's nothing else to say. I pull out a gun and I shoot a guy in the face. I don't have to be like, hey, man, what are you doing? Get in here. You know, like crappy actors, right? Like in old westerns and stuff. So I decided to make Mikey a little dumb and a little funny. This is when I, my approach to the character. I wanted it to be a little Joe Pesci and a little Sonny Corleone. A little of both. I see it. Two of my favorite characters. So I wanted to be Sonny and Joe Pesci. You know, like when I'm like, hey, his head was hitting on the rocks over and over again. You know, <laughs> you know so stupid. The guy's grandson is, the grandfather's right there listening to it. So I, um, so when David said that to me, I was like, oh, this is great. He loves me. And again, the show wasn't even on the air. Nobody knew whether it was going to be successful or not. I totally believed it was going to be a, gigantic hit just from that pilot right but you know you never know nobody knows so i was so happy so i started to basically move out of la i was in la from 82 to 98 and i hated it i just hated it compared to new york and i never felt you're a new yorker you're from new york you're born in new york city born in brooklyn raised most of the time in rockland county like i said lived in the dorms went to nyu got an apartment right afterwards in new york and then i went on the road with beatlemania but um I was here. I was always lonely on Sundays. I just didn't. It's a wonderful place. The weather's great. Everybody's happy. It's just, it's so different than New York City. You know, people's mentality. We have street life. Everybody drives here. You're in your car. I just never felt at home. So I was, so I was like, I'm moving. I basically started moving back. So episodes and, and my agent calls and spoke to Eileen. She goes, how's Al's happy as his futures? And, and her exact word, and Eileen, if you don't remember this, I don't know what to tell you. And again, I'm not complaining about anything. I loved this whole experience. It made, I, it gave me this career. I'm grateful for every second, but this is, this is my experience. What happened? So, um, Stephen Fisher calls and Elaine Randall goes, we love Al Sapienza. You know, he's, he's don't worry about Al. So I figured this is great. I'm in, I'm in. So, and that was probably episode five or six. So I think this is it, man. I got this character. I'll play opposite Jimmy. I'll be this slick dude. You know, we'll, we'll have this conflict going for a long time. And episode seven, now that's not what David Chase had in mind at all. Episode seven, he calls me into his office at Silvercom. And he, you know, he very casually goes, you know you're dying at the end of this, right? Just like that. He goes, you know you're dying at the end of this, right? And he, he was totally right to do that because... You know, you don't know. And I was like, I, I swear to God, Vic, I almost started to cry. I was like, I almost started to cry. And he got upset. He, he like felt sorry for me. He's like, what's the matter? He goes, why are you getting so upset? You know? And I said, David, I, I don't know. I think this show's going to be a giant hit. And, um, and I said, in the words, just roll off my mouth. The writing's incredible. And this, these were his three responses. And they're fascinating. And I told this story at the 20-year reunion. I asked him if he remembered. He's like, nope. Um, these were his three responses. And it kind of tells you what a genius he is in, in, a, in a thing. He, like, he was upset that I was upset. He felt sorry for me. And, um, and I said to him, I said, I said, can't we just get a guest star for the next five episodes? We'll kill him off. And he goes, this isn't that kind of show, you know. 
And he was right. It wasn't that kind of show. And he said to me, he goes, I don't know. He said, I don't know, Al. He said, I don't know if, uh, if America's going to get the humor. That was the first thing he said. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. The second thing he said was, and this is fascinating, and it fascinated me even at the time. He goes, oh, he goes, and frankly, if we do get picked up for another season, I have nothing else to say on the matter, which basically meant the story David wanted to tell was about his mother. And if you look at the first season of The Sopranos, forget the mafia shit. Really, forget the mafia shit. It's a secondary plot to a relationship between a guy and his mother. Look at that season. It's all about his relationship with his mother and his family. And then he's got this ancillary, 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 Jesus. That's why I'm Italian. Ancillary relationship with his, his, his mafia family. And this is the only thing I'm not sure about because I never confirmed it, but I was told. Wait a minute, I think I read the script. He was, remember Tony puts the pillow over his mother's, he was supposed to kill his mother. Tries to. Yeah, but he was supposed to kill her, and they changed it. David changed it. Now, that's the only thing I'm saying I don't have 100% confirmation on, because I never really asked David that, but I was told by a few people. Like, she was supposed to, he was supposed to kill his mom. And this was HBO. There was nothing else on yet. There was like the first and 10 thing and the Gary Sanders. There was nothing. This was an experiment, right? So, and we weren't on the air. Nobody had any idea what, what was going to happen with this show. So that story, and it has nothing to do with the fact that I was on it. Nothing that first season. I think the first season is the absolute best season. I think it stands out by itself. And like David said, the story has a beginning, middle, and end. You know, especially if he killed his mother. But they didn't. He, they, he pulled the pillow off. And when he went to kill Junior, Junior got arrested before they killed him. They killed me. They called Chucky, Chucky Luco, Lupo. He got the people who were trying to kill him. So that, that was what David said. He goes, frankly, I have nothing else to say on the matter. And then there's six more brilliant seasons. You know, Emmy winning. It's just... It was an amazing experience. That's my experience. Did I answer your question about getting the job? Yeah. Yeah, you Holy. answered it beautifully. I had I didn't Holy. I didn't interrupt you one time. Yeah, because you're you're an amazing storyteller. Getting the job and that was losing the job. Oh, so let me tell you one other thing about losing this thing, and people realize it later, but I don't think people got it, and 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 I think. I, I went on, I, uh, I had a PR company. I signed with BWR halfway through the show because I, I think I had pretty good vision. I really believed the thing was going to be successful. And a PR company is expensive. So I was like getting interviewed all over the place. And I don't know if this is true, but Catherine Narducci, who I love and I'm really good friends with, she told me that, that I think it was just Eileen. A few people got mad at me because after the first season... I, I couldn't tell anybody. I couldn't tell anybody I was dead. Anybody. So this show, nobody has any idea if it's going to be successful or not. It premieres the next, the, it premieres January 9th, 1999. And overnight, it's an international s- sensation. And not because of advertising, because the next morning, every anchorman's talking about it, every DJ, Howard Stern. It was like unbelievable. So I'm a lead character on a TV show that hasn't aired yet. I'm dead. 
I'm dead. I'm out of work. I'm, fi- I'm dead. I'm finished, right? It goes on to be the biggest TV show possibly in history or one of the top three. And I'm dead. Number one, I can't tell anyone but my immediate family that I'm dead. I'm getting phone calls immediately. Al, oh, congratulations. We knew you were going to make it. I'm getting calls. Everyone thinks that's it. I'm down. This is stardom. I've got it made. I know that I'm dead at the end of this thing, right? And I'm out of the show. It was picked up two days after it premiered, you know? And, um, but luckily, they still invited me to all the parties in the season. They were very, very gracious and nice. But I have to, this thing, I do have to pat myself on the back in one way. I do. A lot of people would have folded. A lot of people would have been like completely defeated. This was a tremendous blow, you know? And, and I was like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to be killed from The Sopranos. I'm going to be on The Sopranos for that first year. And I'm going to do everything in my power as long as I'm breathing to build on that instead of be depressed that I got killed. And also, the big money didn't come till year three. You know, it was like, you know, the first season, you're not making good money. I mean, it's not bad, but you're not making good money. And then by like season five, you're, you're making a fortune. So I missed all that. But I got what I needed to have a career, which is the most important thing, I guess. Um, you know, I didn't get the big money. And, and, and I have to be honest, looking back on my life, that was that Beatlemania was one of the best experiences of my life. And the people that I worked with on that show, they were just, they're just, they're just amazing. It was, it was an amazing, it was just, I was, I got to knock on wood. I know it's the thing. But it was one of the luckiest breaks I ever had being on that show. I mentioned it earlier, 279 film and TV credits. Are you known for anything more than you're known for Mikey Palmici? I don't think so, but House of Cards is right up there. And believe it or not, Prison Break. I still have people coming up to me. for. I was on one season of Prison Break, too. But no, Sopranos, Sopranos made the... It not only Sopranos made the industry completely aware of me, talent buyers, New York, L.A., London... The industry was completely aware. The public became aware of me. So it, it was the best break I ever had in my life. And as I told David, my dad was old. He was born in 1913. Coming back to New York and able to have that job, I was able to spend the last two years of my father's life with him. And I will forever owe that to David Chase because I wouldn't have been there. I would have been in L.A. So it was just a win-win-win situation. Oh, I have to tell you why Elaine was mad at me. She was mad. So I get an interview in Vanity Fair. And this is true. I'll, oh, my God. What was the guy's name? And I called him on it. He, I couldn't tell him I was dead. I couldn't tell people I was dead. That you, you weren't allowed to do that. So this guy wrote that I'm coming back. And they thought that I, like wanted to promote myself and I did not. And I finally like, and I was wondering, cause like I, Eileen was so nice to me when I was on the show. And then they were very, a few of them were standoffish. And I finally said, what's going on? And she said, well, that I said, I didn't tell that guy that he totally just wrote it. She goes, well, why didn't you call and tell us? Because people lie like that all the time. Reporters. And I said, I didn't think twice about it. I figured you'd, you know, I didn't think it was that important. So the guy from that, I wish I could remember his name. Because I was really mad at him. I called him and yelled at him. Um, but anyway, yeah, so that was the only negative thing that I had with that whole experience. And 
And uh, when I explained it, they were like, all you had to do was tell us that you didn't say that. And I was like, the whole thing was too embarrassing. So anyway, other than that, I can't think of a, a negative experience, except they called me back for the Christmas thing and I was doing a movie in London and I couldn't do it. Remember the whole Christmas reunion, the flashback? I was, I missed it by two days. I was so mad. I was doing that Capone's Boys movie mm. with Richard Roundtree and I, I missed it. Well, thank you for sharing the negative that was unsolicited. You know, look, it's, it's a, it was a beautiful experience and it, 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 it uh, legendarily cemented you on the map of content and media. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the epic deaths that you remember, I want to ask you about it. I want to have you go back to that day, Mikey's death jog. What comes to mind from that shoot, from that moment, uh, from that forest that you were in? Anything 2020? Absolutely. Are you kidding me? <laughs> We're talking about TV, by the way. And it was, I, I, I've watched the show at least 50 times over and over. As soon as it ends, I watch it again. It's like an old friend. I turn it on and I, and I, have, and I have a drink with it every, every day. That scene is, is poetry. It's the, the car, you're running, the scenery, the angles, the lines, the run through the forest, the, the way that you're framed in the lower third of the screen and, and, and Polly and Christopher are hovering over you, the way that they chose to get the coverage of the guns pointing at you, just all of it is, is a two-minute movie. Talk about it. Yeah, so, there, it was just such a talented group of people. It was such a... To be that lucky, like... If you have one of those in your life, you're lucky. If you have two or three of them, I mean, the House of Cards was pretty good. Everyone was so talented. They were just so creatively talented. So in that meeting with David, um, he wrote about that in, in Rolling Stone, by the way. If you read his Rolling Stone interview, it's totally about the hardest person for him to kill was me because I was so upset. He like felt so sorry for me. Um, I said to him, I said, well, if I have to die, can I at least go out like Sonny in the toll booth, please? And his exact response was, I'll think about it. I'll think about it. Wow, you asked that. Absolutely, That's I asked. Awesome. That's said, awesome. That's awesome. I go out like Sonny. He goes, I'll think about it. And they did it. They put 22 squibs on me. And, oh, and I also said to him, I said, I'll do my own stunts. I said, I'll do my own stunts. But they actually, they still had a stunt guy there. I said, I'll do it myself. I don't mind wearing squibs. And I was young and I was, so, um, yeah, they squibbed me up with 22 squibs, 11 shots in each, you know, of their automatic guns their glocks or whatever the hell they had and um i was sad that day i was sad man it was like you're not just <laughs> i know this all sounds so crazy it doesn't i know it sounds so crazy but i was really sad going to work that day because it's not like you're just dying in a show how old were you if you don't mind um i was born in 1956 so okay. God, if i was 42 okay. 40s i don't okay. even know maybe 38 somewhere okay. out there, like late 30s early 40s somewhere in there and um you're not just getting killed on a show you're not going to be seeing these people every day anymore you're not part of this group anymore and you're not getting your paycheck anymore it was a sad day for me like i was really depressed so but of course i gave it 100 percent, like i usually do and uh, you see, and that was totally a mistake and random when that dog almost attacked me. That guy wasn't an extra. That was a guy walking his dog when we were shooting. Love it. The dog's like, Remember that? So real. Yeah, it was so real. That's, that's the beauty of the show, this regularness. <laughs> the dog almost attacked me. Of life. And, um, and that was not in script, huh? No, no. <laughs> I love dog, it. The dog I love it. barking was not part of the whole thing. And I... I 
in the script, it wasn't to beg like that. It wasn't to beg. And um, the lines were there, of course. It was Junior, but I was like, I was begging, if you remember. That was my choice. You know, I was like, and and I thought about it, like, what are you going to do at that point? And I was like, please don't kill me, man. It was Uncle Junior. And Junior did order the hit. I didn't decide to kill, you know, Brendan Falone. You were following orders. Junior told me to do everything that I, I did what Junior told me to do. But I was I was instigating always against poor Tony. But um, anyway, so I'm begging. My brother's a cop. And after he sees that episode, he goes, what the hell's wrong with you? Why did you beg like that? I was like, I don't know. He goes, man, he goes, you look like a pussy, man. He goes, you're begging. He said, you should have said, fuck you. And just said, I'll shoot you. I was like, Joe, first of all, I'm acting. Secondly, that was my, I thought about it. What would a guy do if you know you're going to die in three seconds at this point? You better fucking plead for them not to kill you. I'm going to go like, hey, don't fucking kill me. I'm going to kill anyone. And it was pretty funny. My own brother turned on me. <laughs> so, so, um, and, uh, yeah, it was a surreal day. And... It was in December. You ever lay in a stream in New Jersey in December? I lay in a stream in July. (laughs) It was cold. And under my costume, I had a whole wetsuit. A whole wetsuit under my costume. But still, the water gets in and has to warm up. I was freezing, man. And then they have all the explosions in the water to look like the bullets are hitting by my head. And then there's the squibs on my body that blow up. And there's... 44 wires coming out of my leg because in those days there weren't remote control. The guy had to actually push little things but, 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 as they're going. So, and then they had to reverse and do the other angle. So when they reverse and did the other angle, well, you know, first they're all shooting for Christopher and Paulie's point of view this way. Then they do a 180 and they have to shoot at Christopher and Paulie over my body getting shot the other way. Well, they dragged me down in the water further to get a better shot. And they forgot that the explosions were right there. So an explosion went off right here. I wound up on 13th Street in Manhattan at the ear hospital. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was me for three days. Um, but I was, I was, uh, you know, I absolutely did my best. I think it looks good, but I was very, very sad. I was very sad to be, to be not being part of that show anymore. Thank you for going there and and, and being honest. Um, I'm always honest. It's a fault. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna say a name. Okay. Tell me a word or two that immediately comes to mind, and I emphasize immediately. Don't think, James, the greatest, Dominic, fantastic old school gentleman, all heart, David, a genius. Did you watch the show? You kind, I kind of sensed a little bit of rancor in your voice about the later seasons, but did you watch the show end to end? Okay, mostly, but I have, uh, you know what? David, well, I, 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 I'll be honest about everything, and I hope David appreciates this. I adored that show until the episode where Paulie Walnut shot the valley parking guy. You know what I'm talking about? Absolutely, he died. After that, I watched it, and I still enjoyed it, but I didn't have the same feelings about it. Why did that? Why, why do you remember that specific moment? Let me just set the stage. Christopher and Paulie are arguing about uh, the, the tab, and the guy comes out, uh, tells a uh, $1,200 bill. Christopher says, I'm tapped out, and he tells him, you know, whatever, and they, he has an epileptic seizure, and they clip him. Right. 
Why that scene? I'll tell you exactly why. I had the same experience with House of Cards. Up to that point, I believed everything in this show as a viable possibility. And it, 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 the crazy parallel lives that people leave, especially in organized crime and with antisocial behavior. At that point, you shoot a valet guy in northern New Jersey. It's going to be all over the news. The FBI is going to be on it. It's going to be on every, you know, every cable thing. And it's a gigantic deal when a valet guy gets shot that's completely innocent. You know what I mean? There wasn't a peep about it afterwards. And I was like, to me, then it was like it was it was there was too much creative license for the criminals. By this point, a lot of people there would be. Do you understand what I'm saying? There was no a valet. Just imagine if a valet guy right now got shot in Bergen County at a restaurant. It would be all over the news, all over the radio. And people would be like, who killed this guy and why? There'd be serious investigations and there'd be cops that are like, run that department. They're like, you better get me shit on this next fucking week or you're out. You know what I mean? It wouldn't be just like you never heard about it again. And then after that point, it was like, you know what? Too much leeway for the criminals. Why didn't the Tracy, Ralph beating Tracy to death, why didn't that stop you? I hated that too. I hated that. Like, I hated it. But I have to watch it. It's like, these are my friends. These are, you know, these are, and it's also, it had such, there were, there were moments like that. And then there were still moments of pure genius and beautiful TV making and brilliance. So humanity. Uh, yeah. And humanity. And that's even. the irony of it, yes. right? Yes. They can clip a valet, yes. but at, two minutes later, they can be right. having a confessional that mm-hmm. makes you, you know, ruins, wrecks your whole next day. Cause you're thinking about it. And don't get me wrong. I still thought it was great. After, oh. after that point, I had a different feeling about it. Can I tell you one other ancillary quick story? I was on House of Cards. I don't know if you ever watched that. Of course I did. I watched it until uh, final season. I watched that show, and I thought that first year was brilliant. You know when I was done? When he pushed her in front of the subway. I knew you were going to say that. I'm going, this is bullshit. I'm done. I'm too, I have too many, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. It's not real anymore. A fucking, she gets, first of all, there's cameras all over in Washington, D.C., all over. A girl, a reporter, gets pushed in front of a subway by a, a, by a, 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 congressman. a congressman. And nobody, like, I was dumb. I still watched it, but I was like, I didn't have the same feelings. It's like having a fantastic, brilliant, gorgeous girlfriend, and then she cheats on you one weekend. You still will go out with you, still do everything, but it's never the same. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to fast forward. You already kind of articulated how much The Sopranos meant to your career. It's fair to say that a lot of those 279 credits are the result of or part and parcel that experience in The Sopranos. I saw that you're doing a Nick Santora project for Quibi. Nick Santora wrote for The Sopranos. I don't know if you knew that connection. What can you say about that project or is it too early? I'll tell you as much as I'm allowed to. Um... Uh, Nick also wrote for uh, Prison Break, which I was on afterwards. If you can uh, talk to him and have him come on the pod, I'd love to talk to you him. You know what? I'm trying to reach out to his people. I will and... reach out to him. This is the state of American artistic culture. This is the state of America. And, oh, my God, we're getting, like, into And I, I think it's dangerous. And I think that, you know, for too long we sat there and said, it's okay to have Jerry Springer on the air. It's okay to have Maury Povich on there. It's okay. It's okay to have the housewives of, of New Jersey act like it. It's not okay. Because it becomes a definition of who we are, what ethics and morals we accept as okay, 
what culture we're exporting to the world, and more importantly, what I said, who we are. And if we become the content of what's on Jerry Springer's show, I know Jerry Springer personally, he's a decent guy, he was a mayor of Cincinnati. If we, if that is okay for our children to even watch that behavior of how to deal with differences of opinion and conflict, we're fucked. And the proof is right now of what's happening on CNN, MSNBC, Fox. We're fucked. We're not America anymore. We're a fucking free-for-all of whoever wants the most ratings, wants the most money and the most power. We are not the United States of America anymore. And I'll debate anyone in this country anywhere about that fact. We've gone too fucking far. Our liberalism has gone ridiculously out of control. And we're not this fucking country. What does that have to do? What do you ask me? There was a reason I said that. You asked uh, Nick Santora and your oh, project yeah. with Quibi. So, oh, I got a great story about that. I'll probably be fired once I tell the story, but I don't care. Um, so the show was great. It was great making it. Here's the premise of the show. This is America. 2020 America. If you're broke in Detroit, you need money, there's a guy there that you could go see. And he'll, he will let five human beings hunt you. No guns allowed. No guns. They got to stab you, strangle you, push you in front of a train, whatever, for 24 hours. If you live past the 24 hours, you, and your, you, you get $24 million. If they kill you, your family gets a million dollar dollars for every hour you stayed alive in Detroit. That's what that show's about. That's the premise. That's the premise. Wow. And Christoph Waltz, one of the greatest actors of all time, is running that game. I'm allowed to say, I, I have to think if, if there was a gag order in any of this. No, no. We're allowed to talk about this. Well, it, this won't go up for a week or so, so if there's something changes in between, yeah, just no, let me know. It's okay. I'm not, I, listen. My, All you gave me was the premise. I, I, I have to be honest my whole life. I, de- I decided that when I was like 22. I got to say what's on my mind. And if, I, if people, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. If, if people are mad at me, I, I have to be honest. If people ask me a question, I'm going to answer it honestly, right? So am I happy I was on the show? Absolutely. Am I um, grateful to be on the show? Absolutely. Uh, was it a great experience? Absolutely. Does the content of this show disturb me a little bit that this is where America is going? We can't afford, we don't have much leeway before we fall apart, you know? And I'm not a religious guy. I'm not a right-wing guy. I'm nothing. I'm pro-choice. I'm pro-gay rights. I'm, I'm a human being. I'm just a person. I'm a survivalist. Live and let live. Yeah, man. We're, we're fucking up so bad. It, it, it makes me cry. It kinda, makes me cry. But anyway. Kind of has a Hunger Games vibe to it. Dystopian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, sort of. But this is right now in the streets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? It's crazy. It's like. Purge. The yeah. Purge movies. And nobody can know about it. It's a top secret thing. Yeah. Once, you know, if, if anybody finds out, the game's over and they just, and they, and they hunt, they, they hunt you till you're dead. Even if it takes, not the 24 hours, forever. You break the rules. The press finds out about it. The cops finds out about it. All, you're just dead. Wow. They will, they will hunt you till they kill you so um liam hemsworth is the first uh contestant big names no this is gonna be good it's cbs paid for it yeah so can i tell you a funny story so the first day of production with all this political correctness and the me too movement which is all correct and everybody needs to be treated equally and with respect um there's a new thing now when you do tv shows 
brand new. You know, when you start production, you have a seminar with like 250 people, cast, crew, wardrobe, makeup, transportation, the van riders. And you have to take a seminar on political correctness and on ethics and on not, yes, not having sexual harassment. And a lawyer, the top lawyer flies up from CBS. We shot it in Toronto in, uh, here in Los Angeles and they're head of HR and their team. And they're lecturing us about Les Moonves and Harvey Weinstein. You know, there's going to be a trial. There's got to be a trial and a decision. And also guilty or innocent trials. They don't exist in America anymore. You're, 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 you're tried the first two days in the press and in the New York times and in the everywhere you're tried in the press. Doesn't make a difference. Convictions, acquittals, they don't make a difference anymore. Your lives are ruined. You lose jobs. Not that I think any of these people are anything. Harvey Weinstein's a disgusting human being. But so anyway, they're talking about Harvey Weinstein. They're talking about Kevin Spacey. You know, and I was on House of Cards. And they, and they went as far as to say, and another thing, if you're playing a homicidal maniac or a sexual predator, think twice before you, revert, you rehearse your lines loudly in your trailer. You know, because a lot of time your trailers are a three-banger. Your walls so I'm thinking, and they're like, and you don't rehearse in the in the makeup, you know, chairs anymore when you're getting makeup. Don't run your lines if you're a sexual predator. And I'm thinking, if you write this shit, you write it, you pay for it, you export it to the world representing your corporate logo, yet you don't want us to say it out loud at work practicing. Why do you write it? So I couldn't take it anymore. So afterwards, I walked up to this whole group. Everyone's having it. I said, um, listen, I'm Al Sapiens. I was on The Sopranos. I worked with Kevin Spacey and House of Cards. I said, you're never going to have any trouble for me. I've been doing this for 42 years. I said, but did you read this script? And they all looked at each other and smiled. And they were like, no. I said, you should read it. I said, this script breaks every misdemeanor and felony law you possibly could have in the city of Detroit. And it's about murder for fun and for money. And you're telling us how to behave. And they all start and they were like, look, this is our job. We have to tell people how to behave on the set and get along. It's not. And I was like, okay. I said, but you know what? You should read the script and read it on the flight home and, and ponder this whole situation. And I didn't get fired. <laughs> you know, I was, this is the state, the state of our state. It's insane. I could listen to you and talk about this stuff for hours. Promise me next time you come through L.A., we can do a part two. I promise. And it was and thank you. I'm honored for you ha- to have me. Uh, and thank you for having me. It's an honor and a privilege myself. And, and come to my show on Friday. Yeah, oh, I'll be I, there. Oh, I have to promote something. Absolutely. Very important. We're playing Herb Alpert's place in April. Um, Vibrato. Yeah, Vibrato. Herb Alpert's place. I'm doing my show with Deborah Renard. Ten years. She was on Dallas. She was the star of Lionheart with, um, with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. And the date, the date, it's the first, oh my God, I don't know the date. It's, <laughs> I believe it's the, it's is April there, 12th. Is it's, there a website? Uh, yeah, Vibrato's, vibrato's.com. It's in Bel Air. Herb Albert owns it. The place is magnificent. We sold it out last time. Come to Vibrato's, see our show called The Soundtrack of Our Lives. Please look out. I'm on a new sh- a show right now called Sacrifice on BET with Paula Patton. I've got a movie coming out called Money Plane with Kelsey Grammer. And please look out for one da- uh, a most dangerous game with Christoph Waltz and um, and uh, Leon Hemsworth coming out soon on Quibi. Thank you. 